All right, and welcome everybody to EM Over Easy. We're here with a special episode for coronavirus or COVID-19. Uh, this is episode number four here recording digitally with my co-host Drew and Tanner. Guys, how are you? Socially isolated in my basement. That's how I am. I'm coming off a nice shift and uh, feeling pretty perky overall. So this is number four for us. Uh, this was well, not... well, it's it's number four for Tanner and myself. It's number four for Tanner yeah. and Drew. I uh, missed the last one due to a, a, a sick child. Not with coronavirus, just other, you know, generally sicky type of... You don't know that. Well, actually very true. Um, but was uh, <laughs> up with a kid last time. But talking about coronavirus or COVID-19, how it's impacting us as clinicians and the people around us and how it's impacting our clinical work. So guys, you know, we're, what, over 30 days into coronavirus in the United States and in terms of local quarantines and stay-at-home orders. How, how are we really doing? Well, over, overall, I mean, from a society standpoint, I think we've done fantastic, right? We have uh, squashed the curves. Um, we've we've beaten all the projections outside of the hotspots, right? So, um, and and I think in in some ways, uh, New York City has even beaten its projections. It did not end up being as bad as as it could have been. So, social social distancing absolutely worked, and now we're going to kind of enter phase two, which has me a little anxious, uh, which is we're going to start loosening restrictions and get people back in the workforce. We, we have to do that, right? The I, I do I do agree as much as I think everyone listening to the podcast knows that I am not uh, right-leaning. Um, I do agree that the cure cannot be worse than the disease. And if we continue to socially isolate and, and our austere measures right now, then then at some point the cure does become worse than the disease. I don't know when that is. I'm not the, the health uh, policy expert or the epidemiologist to to figure that part out. But I think we're getting to the point now that we we have to start restoring society. I, I, I do worry about a rebound. I actually really, really worry about where we're going to be in the fall. And I know that's become a little bit of a hot topic uh, with uh, White House pressers recently, too. And, and what I worry about is if we do get a real big rebound of uh, coronavirus is what's what is the public's response going to be to taking austere measures again? In some ways, I'm worried that we did too well in squashing the curve and people aren't just going to, they're not going to buy into us needing to do it again. That's definitely like the big worry is that, you know, we were so effective this first time around that uh, people aren't going to think that it was as big of a deal as it actually was. Like I I was literally talking about this earlier this uh, evening, or I guess, I guess it's the morning. So earlier this morning um, with some of the staff and like, I mean, it's crazy what we did and what we accomplished in the last 30 days as, as a country is amazing, but I think that's going to really be tough to, for a lot of people to understand because they may not have seen what we were seeing or what we were anticipating, uh, as, as deeply as we were worried about it. It's, it's going to be real interesting to see what happens when, when we start having some of those flare ups, cause that's inevitable. I mean, it, it's going to happen. Um, it's just a matter of how bad they are and how well we control them. And I, the the hope I take away is that the next time around, we, we're going to have other things on our side, right? Hopefully we'll have better testing, more advanced testing, abilities to track where the disease is coming from and, and how to respond to it better than the original time when we kind of just got caught with our pants down a little bit. Yeah, I think this is going to be interesting to watch from both the medical side and the layperson side. The hope is, is when the fall comes, is like Tanner mentioned, we have better testing. We have algorithms in place based off of this first wave's data that when all that data is analyzed, what was the best course of action for our patients to where maybe we can do a better job to where the survival rate's a little higher if you get sick, if you get admitted to the hospital. And then on top of that, how do we 
then parlay that to tell, making people understand that this is still something to be worried about. Again, despite the fact that we've just killed it in terms of, I hate to say the word killed it, but we've just really done a really good job of making the projections not come to fruition in terms of how bad this could have been. Right. We, we it, This feels like a little bit of the boy who called wolf, but it's not at all, right? It's because of how effective we were at actually heating, uh, stay at home and social distancing and, and doing things as a society that we've been able to accomplish uh, something that's really pretty, pretty incredible. And the, and the problem is everyone then creates their own narrative. There's people like us that understand it and, and really appreciate the incredible efforts and, and the success it's been. But there's, uh, there's people that translate that into being this wasn't as big of a deal as it was made out to be. And unfortunately, there's a fair amount of conspiracy theories out there that this is really a big government ploy um, or an international ploy or things like that. And and I cringe, absolutely cringe when I read those. There's no evidence to support that whatsoever. You know, something else that we've been talking about amongst the three of us, but is affecting us as emergency physicians, affecting physicians a lot in general is Guys, we've seen our volumes way down in the ED, and I don't want to sound like a fear monger and I'm trying to drum up business uh, for emergency medicine because that's not the case at all. But what's your take on the patients that we're not seeing? Because I'm starting to get as worried about that as I am about anything else. That's also scary too, because what we've we've done by flattening the curve and having people stay at home is we now have people that are afraid to to come in when they actually need to come in. Um, and, and that's something that we as, as healthcare workers need to work on in terms of communicating appropriate response to, to certain things such as symptoms and, and things like that. But I mean, that's the thing that we worry about now is we worry about the person who's been sitting at home with their uh, appendix, just getting slowly worse and rupturing or heart failure getting worse because they had a heart attack and didn't realize it and didn't come in, you know, stroke symptoms that they just ignore for too long. And there's not much we can do anymore with it. Like those, those are the dangerous things now that I guarantee all of our colleagues are thinking about because we're not used to seeing this little of volume in our ERs, uh, especially with those very uh, potentially sick patients. We know that the numbers of heart attacks and appendicitis cases and other things should not have significantly decreased. In fact, if anything, the stress of the situation should have increased cardiovascular issues and, and a few other things. That's what the data previously has told us. We're not seeing these. And I, I can almost tell you that there's a ubiquitous term that I hear from patients now, which is, Doc, I haven't felt very well for the past few days. And I'm sorry I had to come in. I, I, I've been afraid to come to the hospital. And the minute somebody tells me that, there's acute pathology, right? Yeah. And there's probably acute pathology from 48 hours ago that I could have done more about at the time. But you know, it, it's the same thing as looking at a chart and going, oh, oh, this patient hasn't been into the emergency department in five years. This is probably real. And, and now they're telling me that. And oh, oh, this is probably real. And it's almost always true. I actually saw a frequent flyer the other day or a, a high utilizer of our emergency department. And I actually was excited. I was like, Hey, what's going on? And we chatted for a bit. What have you been doing? And, and they were like, yeah, I've been sick for a couple of days. And you, I know I come here all the time, but I haven't been this sick in a while. And sure enough, they had something significantly wrong with them that had been brewing for a couple of days. So, and again, as ERs were safety nets for the community. And when the safety nets not being used on a regular basis, I do worry about that. Maybe that the non COVID curve that might be coming is it's because of COVID we've seen all these people sitting at home getting sick, that there will be a buzz in non COVID sick patients um, because of social distancing. So yeah, it's, it's a big worry. It's going to be very interesting when we when we look at the data in the long run is how many does, how many deaths how much morbidity and mortality is going to be related directly to uh, COVID as far as the, what the disease caused by infecting people and then what is going to be the secondary morbidity and mortality caused by the pandemic and health crisis that has come of it where 
people that are going to have had serious health consequences because they didn't seek medical care, which is directly related to the pandemic and is, is actually secondary stats to it. Um, and people will put all that data together. It'd be fascinating to look at in a couple of years once we have it. Yeah. And I, I think the the important thing to remember in all this is that it's not like we have a lot of practice in pandemics as a country. Um, and it's, it's one of those things where it's tough for us to know what, how far to push the pendulum one way or the other, whether it's staying home, whether it's coming in and, and not only us as healthcare providers, but also the community as well, learning what's that fine balance of what's okay and what's not. And, uh, I, I'm hoping that, you know, as this pandemic continues as it will for the next several months in terms of, you know, it's going to be around us is that we're going to continue to fine tune that, that needle and hopefully, um, keep people safer as we continue on. Yeah. So if there's a public safety announcement that we can give from the emo over easy guys is if, if you're sick, if you think you need to come to the hospital, please come see us in the emergency department. You know, we'll take all the necessary precautions to keep you and us safe. But if you think you need to get checked out, please, please get checked out. Speaking of treatment and diseases and things like that, you know, I know one of the things that a lot of people have had questions on has been some of the treatments for COVID and, you know, vaccine is, is ideally one of the things that's going to be coming down the pipeline, but that's a ways off. But a lot of the acute treatments is one of the things that I think uh, a lot of people have seen in the media and the news in various forms and fashions. We'd actually just recently had a, a, a new article published for one of the big players. Have you guys read that one at all? Yeah, taking a look at it, I think the email I got from from our company was the the guillotine is looming for hydro hydroxychloroquine. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Which I again not playing political sides at all in this. I I have been furious with the way this has been played up in the media just because of the fact that it has literally ruined the scientific method, right? Mm -hmm. Like the whole reason that we practice medicine the way we do is because evidence makes better outcomes for patients. Yes. And as much as we want a cure for really bad diseases, you can't just start throwing crap at the wall and hope it sticks without some sort of process to it. Well, you can on the small scale, but you can't do it by going on a presser or a large news organization seen by millions of people and say, this is the answer when it might not be. And that's the problem here is that some people thought this might be the cure. They had really good feelings about it, I think is the common term that was used. And then the the studies show it really isn't there. And even the earlier studies didn't really show promise other than maybe some anecdotal evidence. So, And listen, this has happened time and time again in the history of medicine and the history of, of mankind where we think uh, we have a, a cure for a disease. Sometimes it is truly people that are way out there and are wacky. Uh, medicine has done some absolutely bizarre things, uh, thinking that it was doing what is right for the patient only to find out down the road that, that it was absolutely wrong. Um, this is, I don't know that this is that bad, uh, as egregious as some of the things we've done in the past. Um, but clearly this was a bandwagon that a lot of people jumped on that, uh, is not going to come to fruition. Uh, I just, I don't know that I saw it to begin with. I certainly don't see it now with the new evidence that's coming out. It didn't really make sense from the start. The mechanisms just weren't there. For anyone that had questions about uh, hydroxychloroquine, know that it's not looking great for that as a treatment. But there's other potential options out there. There's studies that are still going on, actually good studies that are trying to be performed. Because if there's one thing that we do want as healthcare providers is to be able to treat anything that we can, um, but we want to do it with good evidence and, and a good uh, background into what we're actually doing. So there are still other ongoing studies on lots of different potential treatment options, but it's it's going to be a bit before we have good good results to interpret and use on on the public. So the best thing you can do for coronavirus is to limit 
contact, wash your hands, cover your cough, and then stay safe. Like even when the even when the mall opens, maybe don't go. Even when all the social distancing stuff goes away, think about what you do. Be very calculated with who you interact with and how you go about your business. Yeah, we just have to be careful, and uh, we'll we'll see as as we reopen society, as we reopen businesses, we'll we'll know a lot more about how prevalent coronavirus still is, and and we'll find out in the fall whether it's going to come back uh, with vengeance like uh, viruses often do, and we're going to find out if we have a concomitant, you know, a flu epidemic, which we get every year, and a coronavirus epidemic at the same time, which will certainly cause some some major diagnostic challenges. But as we've already talked about, hopefully by then, our medical system is going to be prepared with the ability to test and and potentially treat both disease processes, both infectious processes uh, successfully. So we're we're headed the right way. Uh, we just have to we have to stay stay the course and see what the summer brings us. You know, something that came up uh, in conversation actually with one of my family members was this idea of, of herd immunity. They were actually a little bit confused about what herd immunity actually is. I don't know if you guys can can lend a little light on that subject. You know, the idea of herd immunity is is that somebody gets sick, they're close, maybe their close contacts get exposed to a virus or to a pathogen, and then their body creates antibodies, which then help them down the road. And I, I think the, the benefit of herd immunity when we talk about this, you know, people typically talk about the flu, they talk about things that are vaccinable. I think the problem is it takes time for that to happen. I don't think it's realistic for us to say, all right, so we had one bad push for coronavirus 19 or COVID-19, and then boom, we're going to have herd immunity. I mean, the reason why the flu has some is because the flu has been around for a hundred years. The reason why we have it with things like measles, mumps, and rubella, which are things we get vaccines for, is because enough people have the antibodies to where it protects everybody else around them or protects the people who can't get vaccinated. And although I think that's a great thing to talk about years from now, but we're not going to see that in the first go around. And so I think it's pretty unrealistic, despite how fun it would be if that did happen, but it's just not how how it's going to happen. Yeah, there's some interesting numbers out there. I was looking this up um, after uh, I had this discussion with a family member, which is so so herd immunity, we, we have a lot of herd immunity in society right now. You know, if somebody um, from West Africa came to the US with polio, it would go nowhere, right? Because our herd immunity in the US is high enough that that we can prevent disease spread. In order to get herd immunity, there's, there's something that's called the herd immunity threshold hit. Um, there's lots of hits in medicine, but uh, this one specifically is for immunity. And for most viruses, most disease processes for society to have good herd immunity, you have to be in the high 80s, if not into the 90% immune to really prevent disease spread. So something like polio, um, actually the, the the hit for it is in the 80s, it's 80 to 86%. For something like measles, it's actually 92 to 95%, which is why with measles in particular, it's so important that everybody gets vaccinated because you start dipping below that 90% mark on, on measles immunizations and you start losing herd immunity, it becomes much more, um, the ability to spread and affect people is, is out there. We have no idea what our herd immunity right now is to COVID. Very likely in order to squash it naturally, either with a vaccine or with a number of infections, we need to get it to that at least 80% mark where people have immunity to it. And of course, the other part of this is um, some viruses you don't have lasting immunity to. So think about kids getting RSV in the winter, right? Uh, the same kid can get RSV multiple times over the course of a winter season. Um, they might have immunity for a little while, but then it wanes. That's a virus also, um, not all that different from coronavirus. So we just don't know what COVID-19 is going to be. Is this something that we'll have immunity for for a long time? Or is it something that uh, potentially we have to add into like a flu vaccine where we get vaccinated against it yearly to prevent our herd immunity from dropping? I think the key term there is vaccination, is that herd immunity happens in, in diseases that you can vaccinate for. And so a, until we get a vaccine um, that's reliable for this, I think we're that that's just not something that's going to happen. 
And I think one of the big keys to take away from the herd immunity talk is, you know, how do we know we have herd immunity? We have to be able to test for it. We have to be able to test and also expand those antigens throughout the community in, in a fashion that is safe and, and reasonable. And so right now, that's, I think, the big thing that a lot of us in healthcare are wanting is we want better testing, more accurate testing, that we can be testing these antibodies in people to know if they've had the disease, how long they've, you know, how long their immunity lasts for, things like that. Um, and so I think that's one of the next big steps for us in the progression of this pandemic is to obtain herd immunity, we need to be able to test for it. And we need, we need better testing that's going to be more effective and, and widespread that we can really get that information. Yeah, reliable testing, right, is yeah. the key. It's something we've talked a lot about uh, amongst uh, our residency program and, and certainly nationally is a conversation also, which is we don't have a gold standard to compare our testing to. And you can't really establish sensitivity and specificity of a test, which for people who don't understand uh, the way that works, it's, it's really how accurate a test is um, in a layman term. But you can't establish establish accuracy of a test until you have a gold standard for that test. And, and we don't have that yet. None of that is established. So we we think that some of our testing is really good. And then we're finding out that maybe it's not as good as we thought it was. And there's also a lot of sampling issues too. If you put crap in, you get crap out, right? It doesn't matter how good how good the test is. It's, it's still crap. It's a struggle right now. And we're getting there. We've made a ton of progress over the, the last two months. And I think by the end of the summer, when we see spikes again, we'll absolutely have testing in a much better place, but it's not there right now. Just for, for people to kind of understand the thought process that we're going through on like a shift with this. So for instance, last a couple of shifts ago, we were talking about this because someone in the staff asked me, can we take this person off of the isolation protocol we have, which kind of protects staff and people from going into a room because their COVID test came back negative. And so we had a discussion about that. And I said, well, here's the deal. So right now we know that our tests are, as far as we can tell, somewhere between let's say 70 and 80% accurate if we're really, really optimistic. So we take that, but we have other variables, right? We have how well was the sample acquired? Did it get into the posterior oral nasopharynx that really just swabbed up all that gunk that's back in there where the germs are sitting? And, and did it capture it enough that the test could find it? And then the other thing you have to think about too is also viral load. So when patients have a virus, they have a certain amount of virus that flares up within their body and allows them to shed it and spread it. And if it's not high enough to be picked up by the test, then it's not going to come up positive on the test, even though they're still positive. And so not only do we have a test that's not 100% accurate, but we also have two min at, at minimum two other variables that are mixed into that. Like you can't just trust that negative test all the time. You have to take it with a grain of salt. And so that's what we mean by all these other variables going into a sample trying to acquire. Yeah. And if the patient, you know, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck, regardless of what your test might tell you, right? We, we have to just, exactly. if the patient looks like they have it, their x-ray or their CT scan looks like it's it's COVID. If everything else tells you it's COVID and the test comes back negative, based on our testing parameters right now, you, you can't rely on that test. Which is why if you go to get tested and, and somebody says you sound like COVID and your test comes back negative and they say, well, you should still treat yourself like COVID and isolate. That's why we're doing that because there's still a chance that you could be spreading it. Yeah. So in, in return to work policies now are if previously positive or significantly symptomatic, you have to have two negative tests separated by 48 hours and asymptomatic over 72 hours, right? Say that five times fast, it's a bit of a jumble, but this is all because our testing isn't there yet and, and we know how this disease works. All right, so I'm gonna throw a little curveball and I wanna close on a positive note. 
Oh, he's, what, smirk, he's smirking as he I, does this. <laughs> but on a positive note, I, th- I think one thing that maybe we've forgotten through all this is that this, I mean, this is bad. It's been rough to be at work. But I have seen some of the coolest things happen over the past month in terms of the way people are rallying behind healthcare workers and rallying behind this disease. And if you could pick one thing that you've seen, what would you want to share that with our audience? And this will make it into the show notes. Uh, I mean, there's, there's so many things. In the first episode, Tanner talked about the uh, the guy playing the piano and the saxophone in Italy. Yeah, I loved, I, you know, and, and Tanner found that video of the uh, the police officers that got, basically did a street concert, you know, got other police cars and was it Spain? I think that's where it was. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff going on. I, I, I'm kind of over the healthcare uh, worker thing, to be honest with you. Um, I don't want to be called a hero. And we can get into this on the next episode of why I think calling healthcare workers hero is such a bad thing. So stay tuned for that. I've been really touched by the things that um, some restaurants and and some of the other uh, service related industries that have gotten hit so hard have been doing. You know, um, one of the restaurants locally that uh, we love to eat at in the Columbus area last night did an Earth Day special, um, which had nothing to do with Earth Day other than everything they were selling. 100% of that went to their employee relief fund. And so really people looking for ways to take care of themselves and take care of each other. You know, this sucks. It's it hurts everybody. There's everybody, everybody's affected uh, by this, but there's a ton of good going on out there. So I don't have one specific thing, uh, but yeah, it's it's always reassuring to, to hear about the good. I think probably one of my favorite things I've seen so far, you know, outside of just witnessing the day in, day out of people rallying around each other and trying to bring each other up would be the the thirst for good news mm-hmm. and, and positive things in the world. And whether it's, you know, chatting with your friend about the ridiculousness of uh, Tiger King on Netflix, or if it's something like John Krasinski from uh, played Jim on The Office and his Some good news, yeah. random good good news network, r- random startup news network of just himself. God, I love that. And all he does is share good news, and you know it ranges from everything. Yes, there's healthcare worker stuff in there, but there's there's all kinds of just people having fun and interacting and and being happy, which is so, so valuable to remember is that there is still happiness in this world. There is still hope. This too will end. We will get through it at some point. It's just, you know, we have to, we have to use each other and support each other and, and lean on each other throughout the process. I guess I asked us to pick something specific and I'll, and I'll dodge that question. And I think what's been fun for me to watch and really at times awesome is to see the relationships that I had before that I thought I had lost. And maybe, and maybe this is just me, but I've, more people have reached out in the past month just to check in, just to say hi. And I've had more conversations with people that I kind of thought that I was like, well, that that relationship was on the shelf. And it's because of the time we've had, we've been able to rekindle those relationships and been able to really just kind of reinvigorate our humanity in terms of the way we interact with other people. So if you're listening to the show and you feel the need to Reinvigorate humanity. We just got deep at the closing of COVID episode four. Holy cow. But if you're listening to this and somebody comes to mind, call them on the phone. Send him a text message. Uh, Zoom. Zoom. Zoom with him. Yeah. And pick a really cool background. That's my favorite part about Zooms. That's my only favorite part about Zoom. I was going to say, that's the only thing about Zoom that I enjoy. I've got a Jurassic Park background now that I love. You would have a Jurassic Park background. Well, guys, I appreciate you guys hopping on this morning. Tanner just came off a night shift. We'll try to get this out in the next 24 hours. So, again, thanks for checking in with us at EM Over Easy for COVID-19 episode number four. Again, don't forget to watch out for other content on our blog, emovereasy.com, and subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Stay safe out there, people. Stay safe out there, people.